0: Welcome to the Alternative Assets Podcast. This is not another podcast about the stock market. Instead, we focus on the rapidly evolving world of alts. The goal of this podcast is to provide original research and insights that empowers you to become a better alternative investor. With each episode, we hope to bring you along with us as we learn together. Thanks for joining. Now let's dive in. Opinions expressed on this podcast by the hosts and podcast guests are for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Podcast hosts and guests may maintain positions in the offerings discussed in this podcast.
1: All right. Hey everyone. My guest today is Jason Prado. Jason is the co-founder of the new Drivers Cooperative. It's a new ride sharing app that is 100% worker owned. This is a fantastic alternative to Uber. It uses a completely different forward-thinking structure where every driver is also a member uh, who owns one share of the company and thus gets a vote towards leadership and business decisions and all sorts of stuff. So this structure is awesome. It creates a better deal for all parties. And as you'll hear in this podcast, it's, it's definitely a better deal for drivers, but it's also a better deal for riders as well, who actually see lower prices per ride compared to Uber. And the best part is as an investor, you can invest in this company, you can support the cause and get real returns. So Jason, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Hey, thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here to talk about the co-op. Awesome. All right. So let's start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your, your histories because your your story is fascinating to me. So if I understand correctly, you used to work at Google and Facebook where you actually organized a union while at Facebook. Uh, and then I think you, you left and campaigned for Bernie. Is that all correct? Yeah, maybe overstating
0: my role in it. Um, so I worked in, in big tech for about 10 or 12 years uh, across Microsoft, Google, Facebook, the longest time for about seven or eight years at Facebook and some startups in between those. Uh, so kind of a, a fairly normal tech background, whereas an engineer, engineering manager at these companies um, worked on like you know all kinds of teams, products, infrastructure. So fairly varied experience, but definitely typical. But um, started to maybe want to do something else uh, in 2015, 2016. You know, the the company Facebook had changed. I was going through some changes, learning about alternative politics that I wasn't really exposed to before. Facebook's role in the world became a lot more controversial and a lot less clear cut around those times. And around the 2016 election, I uh, had a bit of an epiphany, like a lot of people did, that, you know, something was wrong. I had, I had maybe made some wrong choices to end up in the position I was and maybe didn't believe in the... The leadership of the company the same way and uh, or, or the, the mission of silicon valley the same way i really had bought into for for a super long time basically so i started looking for new answers and new ideas to kind of explain maybe what i should be doing and then this kind of hectic time in america and found the labor movement so i've talked a little bit before and other places about my experience, getting to know other tech workers and and realizing that, well, we're tech workers, we, we're, our relationship production is workers. We're like not, not owners. Uh, for the most part, most of us might have some some shares in our companies, but none of us are executives. Uh, there's very, very few people who have actual like decision-making power in, in the tech industry. So really most of us uh, relate to our workplaces as, you know, just atomized workers, just like any other workplace in, in the US or, or around most parts of the world. Some other tech workers and I started researching the labor movement and finding that you know there's this whole history of the American labor movement that we we're kind of a small part of. Uh, so I got to know people interested in labor and union organizers and all kinds of different people through through this experience learning, and I got pulled into a labor organizing campaign at Facebook, and I, I was a very very small part of it for sure, but uh, contributed as a full time employee. So you know if you walk around any tech campus in the U.S. today, Google, Facebook, whatever, most of the people you see are not actually employees now, right? Like majority of people who quote unquote work for Google are actually contractors or TBCs, temp spenders and contractors, as Google calls them. Uh, and that's been a, a big shift right over the past several years. So most people who work at Google on these campuses or at Facebook like don't have the, the perks you hear about in Silicon Valley all the time. They're just working jobs that are just okay at best, and they probably don't have healthcare. So I jumped on this labor campaign uh, that was organizing cafeteria workers at first at Facebook, and then other service workers got involved in other unions. So I tried to do solidarity work as a full-time employee doing things like, you know, I can gripe to the, to management and not really get retaliated against in a way like a cafeteria worker or other contractor can't. Uh, And I would get to know cafeteria workers and other service workers, go to their houses, tell them about the union, tell them that as a software engineer, like I'm on their side, I think they deserve better. And like, if it push comes to shove, I have their backs. If they like walk out or have to do a strike or something, it's, it'll be clear to to me and other full-time employees that we're on their side, not the side of say management. And this led to growing disillusionment with silicon valley like if we can't take care of the people literally in our backyards then how are we possibly going to make good choices for like the information ecosystem of the planet and other other difficult problems that silicon valley faces so decided to leave in 2020 left facebook uh worked on the bernie campaign in dc for a while as that wound down came home to uh, take some time off during the lockdown and then start researching cooperatives and landed in the cooperative ecosystem.
1: Wow, there's a lot to take in there. One of the things that really interested me is what you said about the contract workers at Facebook and Google. It seems that the uh, the contractization of the workforce is not just something you see with, you know, with ride sharing, with Uber and stuff, but it's also happening at Facebook and Google. That's really fascinating. So that you're saying that's what kind of drove you to start getting involved and helping organize um, those folks into a union. Can you tell us, a little bit more about that. I'm fascinated, like, how were you able to do that while working at Facebook? There's got to be a lot going on there. (laughs) Right. So I got involved by, like I said, meeting these union organizers,
0: uh, who pulled me aside and said, there's this uh, underground campaign, you know, we're, we're not talking, we're not talking about publicly until we hit majority. So can you get involved with it on the early side? So a lot of the work was before it went public. But, you know, when we did go public, management was actually like not really that opposed to it. I think because as cafeteria workers are ultimately like a small part of Facebook, it's not really about Facebook's like impact in the world. And you look at other campaigns, like say, uh, workers organizing around Jedi at Google, which is this system that the US military, that uh, Google sells to the US military workers at Google are like, we, we have a problem with Google's core business, and we want to take take power uh, as workers and, and change course there. I think Efforts in tech worker organizing that are more around impact have been a lot more difficult and have been a lot more contentious, you know, like Google's fired organizers uh, standing up to Google's role in the military or contracts with CBP, Customs and Border Patrol. So those are very, very difficult campaigns to to win. And we've only had very few victories there as, as tech worker organizers. Um, on the other hand there's very bread and butter issues happening on these tech campuses where like it turns out that most of the people who serve food at a, on a tech campus like don't have health insurance and they can't afford health insurance because the low wages and poor benefits they get and um, that like is just so absurd on its face that it's a kind of a, an easier fight so I didn't have any trouble with management at Facebook over that campaign um, I have later ran into trouble uh, talking about other issues at Facebook for sure.
1: <laughs> I can imagine man that's that's a that's a tricky conversation.
0: Yeah, and then over the the three or four years I was both involved in tech worker organizing and working at Facebook day to day the the cognitive dissonance like grew and became a little bit harder to to justify. And so that's what ultimately kind of led to me, you know, burning out a bit between doing my job, doing organizing at, at the workplace and doing organizing outside the workplace all at the same time.
1: So you burned out a bit and then left Facebook and then you felt the burn. You got into the, you were uh, campaigning for Bernie and helping the Bernie campaign. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. I had been volunteering for the Bernie campaign
0: just on the ground in California, uh, knocking doors, coordinating other people to knock doors, just you know doing whatever I could in a small way locally. But when it became clear I was gonna be leaving my job, I talked to some folks I knew affiliated with the campaign to see if I my tech skills would be useful. Uh, and they had an opening for a data engineer, uh, a data engineering consultant to, to come in for just um, about a month and a half around Super Tuesday to make sure that we were in good shape for the big primary here. you know They had a huge data operation and you know, the number of people they phone and text and knock doors on every day was was really um, astounding. That was kind of the power of, of the people's powered campaign. But at the same time, um, if you've ever worked in like election tech or, or anywhere near there, you know that Engineering principles are not like kind of the first concern, right? Because everyone knows this code will be thrown away in, in three to six months. Uh, so it's kind of not the best code you've ever seen. So they need some engineering skills to come in and uh, kind of clean up the code base and make sure it could continue to scale, especially if we made it past Super Tuesday. So it was a cool experience. Like data is not my background, but I'd worked on a few campaigns. So I knew a little bit about how these systems work. I wouldn't say I added a ton of value there, but it was cool to keep those systems up and running through Super Tuesday and then uh, just learn a lot about that space very quickly.
1: Cool, so it sounds like the Drivers' Cooperative was kind of after that phase of your life. This was a, a lockdown baby. Uh essentially. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your your team. Who came up with the idea? How did you guys first get started? I, I think there's someone from from Uber on your team. Is that correct? That's right. And like you called
0: me a co-founder, which is not super accurate because I joined like pretty late. I only joined about six months ago and the effort's been going on for a year and a half. So so I usually refer to myself as the chief technologist. What actually attracted me to the cooperative is that they didn't have a technical co-founder, that this wasn't a uh, Silicon Valley guy with an idea for an app coming in to solve all the workers' problems or something, right? You see a lot of that like around the 2016 election. You saw a lot of that around um, like the tumult in the country for the past few years. Like The idea that technology is going to solve our problems feels kind of ridiculous to me, but it's also very enticing. So I got to know some folks at the cooperative And they had three co-founders, one who'd been driving for decades, one who had been a a labor organizer for a long time, and then uh, one who was a GM at Uber in East Africa. So they didn't have a technical co-founder, which is so refreshing coming from from Silicon Valley. Uh, Instead, they had had organized thousands of drivers through years of organizing effort to try and make gains with with Uber and other companies in New York City. And these drivers were fed up and looking to solve their own problems. Uh, So this thesis I've been developing is that talented technologists instead of coming up with their own apps and companies and you know trying to force their understanding upon problems should instead go find people who are already organizing themselves and trying to solve their own problems and are maybe flailing with technology and, and aren't able to solve their problems because they don't have access to technology and say software development and then technologists should go there and help them solve those problems instead and make those problems their own problems instead of coming in from above kind of uh, it's it's kind of integrating yourself into these organizing efforts and uh, using your tech skills to make them successful
1: very cool Yeah. I mean, uh, I like what you said about technology, like a hammer looking for a nail kind of like metaphor in many ways. You know, the way you guys went about it is much different and fundamentally more pure. It's more the the right way to go about things. Like there's a definite problem. Let's apply technology to the problem instead of just creating technology for the sake of technology and seeing what we can extract from that. I think we should take a step back though and talk about cooperatives. So what is a cooperative? Like what what does it mean to be a cooperative? Yeah, that's a great question. So you're a
0: cooperative if most uh, like uh, most of the voting power and decision making power in the organization or company lies with the stakeholders who it affects and who you know do the work or participate in some kind of cooperative process Uh, So, you know, you might've shopped at REI and heard REI is a cooperative, it's a consumer cooperative where uh, everyone who buys a certain amount at REI uh, can become a member of the consumer cooperative and get like a rebate at the end of the year based on how well the company did. So you could imagine like starting a grocery store as a consumer cooperative, it's people coming together to solve their problem of needing some goods and that cooperative fulfills those needs. That's one kind of cooperative but generally when people are talking about cooperatives we're often talking about worker-owned cooperatives so in a worker-owned cooperative the idea is that instead of the company being owned by absentee shareholders whose interests are quite divergent from the workers who actually perform the labor of the company and the customers who actually you know benefit from the company that you know the shareholders kind of are just there to like Siphon off some of the profit. Um, instead of that situation, which is kind of the legacy normal capitalist business situation, in a cooperative, the workers own a majority of the shares that vote and make decisions in in the company. So this, you know, there's cooperatives of all sizes. Uh, your local grocery store might be a worker-owned cooperative, like mine is, and I prefer to shop there because it's a co-op and there's no corporation behind it, or no shareholders behind it. Um, but then there's also very large corporations, like the Mondragon Corporation in Spain, produces all kinds of like household industrial goods and they have retail stores and they have 55,000 employees or so you know working at a place like Mondragon probably feels a lot like working at you know any other retail store any other factory floor but probably like a little bit better and then you get to vote on like your board of directors every year or two like so it's not a completely radical like you know, we we make every decision by consensus kind of thing. Instead, it's like the ultimate power instead of lying with capital and shareholders lies with the people that it affects most, which are generally the workers.
1: So I was part of a co-op back in college and it was a sandwich shop. And uh, there was seven co-ops at UMass where I went to, to school. So I was, I was part of one of those and it was an awesome experience. Now, truth be told, about three or four of those co-ops, like the numbers really weren't working too well. Um, the one I was part of actually was one of them. But the experience was fascinating. A few of the co-ops were killing it. And it was really interesting to kind of see how we work together to help each other out. But the bottom line is, you know, I learned a ton about how co-op boards work, right? Like how decisions are made, how elections are handled, how hiring and firing works. It was a great, wonderful experience. So now with driver's co-op, so let's talk specifics. So each driver is by default a member who owns uh, one share of the company and that That's a voting share towards elections, business decisions, uh, that sort of thing. Is that correct? That's right. I think we have some some minor
0: minimum requirements, like you have to actually do some rides with us and, you know, like give us some documentation and stuff. But yeah, any driver can become an owner.
1: Cool. Is that by default or is that like as long as they hit those minimums, it's you know just a function of paperwork and that sort of thing? Yeah, it's it's
0: anyone who actually drives with us uh, can become a member right now. In the future, like we might change that or, or something, but right now it's, it's wide open.
1: That must make it really enticing for drivers and for soliciting drivers, which we'll get to the marketplace dynamics in a sec. But quick question now, are you guys uh, also a public benefit corporation? I know that's something that um, a lot of people are getting interested in. You know, following in the footsteps of um, REI and uh, North Face and Patagonia, are you guys a public benefit corp, or have you thought about becoming one?
0: I think we're still researching that and working through uh, the qualifications for it. We wanted to launch as soon as possible, but that is something that we are definitely considering. Cool.
1: Let's shift gears and talk about ride sharing for a moment, and specifically the evolution of ride sharing because it's been an interesting uh, ride. Pun totally intended. It's no secret that. Uber prices are going up and like everyone is taking notice. It's kind of a larger metaphor of the promise of the gig economy. That's like starting to fall apart. It kind of started out with this promise of flexibility and like choosing your own hours and independence. And there's definitely some pros to all of that, but it it has definitely fallen short of expectations. Uh, Workers are without benefits. Expenses are super high gas and maintenance and other fees and most importantly variable pay which is which is a huge one it needs improvement but what, what's fascinating to me is like how uber has kind of controlled this market as well right like they they kept prices low when they first started out by subsidizing the rides with vc cash and that basically changed when they went public now that they're public you know wall street's demanding real returns fares are skyrocketing again driver supply is still low the riders are getting juiced And the extra revenue isn't even being funneled down to the drivers. In fact, many cases, drivers are seeing their pay fall, even as fares are increasing. Many drivers are finding out they don't meet the thresholds to qualify for the benefits. And like on top of it all, it hasn't even moved the stock price. Like The stock is still at 40 bucks a share, exactly where it started a few years ago, flat as a pancake overall. It's just, it's kind of broken. And so I think I think it's definitely fair to say this model is sort of broken and there's a lot to fix. But my question for you is, like, in your opinion, like, what are the most like the one or two most fundamental problems with Uber and with Uber's model? Like, what is the most broken there? Gosh, I mean, you laid out basically all of them. Um, And and even
0: ignoring the question, like, should rideshare exist? Is this something that's filling a need that we couldn't fill like some other way? Like, uh, why aren't there better public transit options throughout most of the US? Like, why is it going to be so hard to move to EVs for rideshare? Plenty and plenty of problems. The root, I would say, of most of them is that, well, of course, drivers just don't have a say, right? They're kind of the product here they're they're being manipulated by by uber for uber's benefit ultimately and ultimately for the benefit of uber's shareholders as you say like kind of the most glaring issues are, wow, you might pay like 5x surge right now to get from Manhattan to Brooklyn uh, with Uber because of this quote unquote labor shortage or like a you know wage shortage. But how much of that is the driver seeing? Well, next time you take an, an Uber or Lyft, like, you know, you should actually tell your driver, like FYI, this is how much I'm paying. Um, and the driver will know after you get out, like how much they earn from it. And they'll understand that discrepancy better. Because like you said, these surge prices are not trickling down to drivers at all. Drivers are making the same as ever, sometimes more, even sometimes less. So just the economics just seem seem really poor. It seems like a total race to the bottom. And um, there hasn't really been a good prospect for, for getting out of this rut uh, so far. It seems like Uber and Lyft is like duopoly, kind of hold all the cards. So myriad problems there. Also, like, you know, driving a taxi just used to be a decent middle class job It was a great job for for immigrants, it was uh, a way to like, you know, start a business of your own or to take some control of your own schedule and your own like, you know, work environment. And with Uber kind of like driving prices down over the past decade or so, you know, driving driving transit logistics taxi is, is much less of a good job now. So we're seeing this everywhere. It's the same thing, you know, uh, in the gig economy, it's the same thing at uh, tech companies, transitioning everyone to contractors. At Uber, you know, you're onboarded through an app for the most part. If you have a question about it, you will talk to a contractor. So like you're an Uber driver, you're not an employee. Anyone you talk to in support is a contractor, not an employee. Their manager is probably contractors of some kinds, not employees. So there's this like vanishingly small staff as the ladder is being pulled up that actually benefit from all of this. And everyone else is kind of Chasing their wages as they see them fall, so the whole the whole thing is just pretty really displeasing.
1: All great points. To be fair, I think that with cabs before Uber, there were definitely some problems for sure. I mean, th- there was some serious inconveniences. The medallion was a, a huge hurdle for for people. I mean, it was you know what, one hundred fifty two hundred thousand dollars to to have the right to to drive a cab. But let's also be honest that, yeah, I mean, when all is said and done, it was a middle class job. It was reliable. You could do it for your life. People did. I mean, when all is said and done with Uber and the dust is settled now, like a decade later, you're basically left with like a marginally better cab experience that you do through an app. But at what cost? I mean, that's the real question. It's The genie should never really go back in the bottle, I don't think, as far as like, you know, app based ride sharing. And, you know, I think it it can definitely find a happy home in conjunction with public options, absolutely. But I think the model is so severely flawed. And this is why I'm so stoked that you guys are doing what you do. So let's talk specifics. How are you better than Uber? And let's be really specific. Like, what specifically makes you guys just fundamentally better? Uh, Sure. So
0: there's structural aspects of it, then there's just the really cut and dry economic aspects like today, our board of drivers that ultimately govern our policy and our pricing structure and things very relevant to drivers, they've decided that the uh, pricing structure for us is drivers get 85% of the revenue a ride after strike fees, tolls, taxes, eighty five percent of it passes directly through to drivers, 15 percent goes to the cooperative
1: compared to uber I, I believe I've read anywhere from about 25 25 to 40 percent is the ta- the uber take rate is that correct
0: yeah I think it
1: on like in extreme cases it
0: can be higher and um in normal cases it can be about there so like if you're seeing like a 10x surge like you might it might be much less than that uh, that kind of cut, uh, but in 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 the normal case, like that uh, sounds about right.
1: Okay, so your take rate you're saying is about fifteen percent, so it's lower. Yeah, exactly. It, it's 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 going to be lower. And then you know the
0: the real structural issue there is well, how was that decided? At Uber, it's decided by or you know in a, in a rideshare monopoly, it's decided by a team of game theorists and psychologists and app developers and data scientists whose incentives are to like. Get the most rides out of a driver by paying them the less the least and and that's just that's what they have to do to you know earn a return for their shareholders to maximize their shareholders value to justify their massive valuations that's just how it's going to go structurally whereas at the drivers cooperative our driver board who's setting those policies are drivers themselves uh they're setting on the policies on the economics of every ride of the policies of you know what are the expectations of our drivers uh, the expectations of our riders so it's ultimately under driver control and you know our driver board is like i said made up of drivers who are volunteering or who are elected from from the board even our board of directors the people who hire me as the staff member uh, are ultimately voted upon by our driver members
1: this is interesting so let's talk about earnings on the website it says that members of the cooperative or basically drivers are making more per trip. So about eight to 10% more per trip than they do on Uber. And in addition, the profits are going back to the drivers as dividends. Um, can you talk about both of those things, especially interested on the uh, reinvestment into dividend side? Uh, sure. So like I said, 15% goes to the cooperative,
0: the rest goes to the driver, minus you know fees and uh, taxes and whatnot. Then on the uh, profit sharing side, so in a capitalist business, you will have uh, profit and dividends in cooperatives. Uh, you might have talked about other cooperatives before that have a similar structure where instead of profit and dividends, we have surplus, and patronage, kind of the same concept, but just like different lingo in, uh in the co- cooperative space. So surplus is at the end of the year, we look at how much we brought in revenue and how much we spent on expenses. And that's our surplus. You could call it profit. If you're going to give it to shareholders, we call it a surplus. So we look around and say like, okay, what do we do with a surplus in a capitalist corporation? You might pay it out to shareholders as dividends. You might reinvest it in the business, uh, you might pay a lobbyist, who knows in our cooperative, we look at the surplus and think, okay, well, some of it should go back to drivers because they earned this and they're our shareholders. Uh, and then some of it will be reinvested in the business. So it's very similar in concept. Then we have the question of like, okay, how do we pay this out? How, how do we pay these dividends as patronage out to our drivers? Co-ops take on different systems for doing this. So at your local grocery co-op, it might just be Number of hours that one particular worker worked divided by number of hours all workers worked, then that's like your share of the surplus. In our cooperative, we have the system of patronage points. Uh, So you earn a point every time you take a ride, every time you perform a ride, you earn points for coming to a meeting because that's time you could be earning money and we need people to come to meetings to make our decisions. Uh, then you might earn, you'll earn three points for referring a writer, five for a driver. And then we're, we're fleshing this out as time goes on. Uh, what's interesting is there's like kind of an egalitarian principle at work. Um, in your grocery cooperative, it's, you know, one person's hour worked is the same across no matter, across everyone, no matter what their role is, because, you know, we're all human and our time is all, all equally valuable Is this principle we'd like to uphold.
1: It's, it's really interesting. I, I remember at the uh, co-op I was a part of, so all seven co-ops basically pooled their money at the end of uh, each quarter and then paid out a, a dividend equally among the co-ops. It creates some interesting dynamics for the co-ops. You know, uh, the owners of the the better, uh, the co-ops that are performing better are essentially kind of getting their earnings flattened out a little bit. But we really believe that like the whole ecosystem would benefit, you know, if we were all in it together. And, you know, in the end, it, it all worked out. I mean, these, these entities are still around today. When you talk about like paying the dividends out, like, yeah, it's definitely something you got to figure out the right proportional dividend to give each driver. It also makes you kind of think like, like 80% of Uber's problems could be solved if they basically just made every driver like a shareholder, you know, that's just not how capitalism works. And uh, that is how how you guys work a little bit. So really cool to see. Okay, so let's talk about marketplace dynamics. Um, I love marketplaces and getting the chicken and the egg going is always super tricky so let's talk with the uh, supply side. So you guys have about three thousand drivers uh, today. Is that correct? That's right. Probably around thirty-five hundred at this point. So how are you finding, you know, supply? Like, how easy or difficult has it been to find drivers, and have you been able to draw drivers away from Uber and Lyft? And uh, you know, you know, how's that been working out? It's uh, a good question. So
0: on the demand side, we're we're doing great. People are hungry for this. We have. Uh, plenty of requests coming in for rides all the time. People want an alternative. They want something, uh, that they can believe in. They want to be a part of, of, of this new movement to build a worker owned alternative, the supply side is, is where we're going to live or die though. And it's, it's been challenging and we're, uh, working on that with most of our, most of our efforts. Uh, so we have these 3,500 drivers who are uh, for the most part, ready to drive. And we, they're coming largely from, I guess, like worker organizing efforts over the past several years. So most drivers in the New York area are professional. They're doing this pretty much full time. This is their main thing. There's very little kind of casual uh, driving the way you might find in San Francisco, like somebody might drive for Lyft on the weekends or in addition to being a student or something. Just the licensure requirements and and difficulty of uh, the marketplace in New York City means most of our drivers are full time. So they've been doing this for a long time. They're very good at what they do and they, they've made this their their business and their career. So they know lots of other drivers. They've been organizing for, for uh, around demands to Uber and Lyft and the, the big rideshare companies for, for many years. And it's from these organizing efforts, actually, that the co-op was born. Of People saying like, well, you know, we're not getting what we want fast enough from Uber. Let's just go out and try and build an alternative on our own. So it's coming through like word of mouth and, and people in their immigrant communities and community organizations, like talking to each other about it and hearing that, uh, you know, there's some people working on an alternative. And It's early, but they're, they could be a part of it.
1: Yeah, supply is always, I shouldn't say always, but it's most of the time it's the the harder side of the equation to get right good to see that you guys are, are um, making some progress there. And in terms of the demand side, so talk about that a little bit, uh, if you could, what kind of level are you at in terms of riders? I don't know if you can speak to rides per day, but I'm, I'm really interested in the number of riders and also kind of like the ratio of riders to drivers and, and uh, how you guys kind of think about the right ratio there.
0: Yeah, we, uh, so what we're talking about publicly is we've done, I think over 4,000 rides now since we launched a few months ago. So we're live, but like, you could think of this as like an early vision of, of what we're really, really striving to build. So people are super stoked to be a part of it. Like I said, um, we've gotten really good press uh, from mainstream outlets like the New York Times. The day we launched uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the congresswoman, wrote about us on our Instagram story and that just decimated our servers instantly. We got like a thousand requests, like as right out the door could not serve most of those because like we would, we had just basically turned on the switch, like within like hours of, of that post going live. So we've, we're, we've recovered since then. And we're, we're um, improving the health of the system all the time. We are also doing uh, like partnerships with various organizations to do like kind of B2B deals around getting, Rides for all kinds of organizations so uh, New York City has a ton of electoral campaigns every year because it's such a big place so you know every year uh, campaign political campaigns electoral campaigns We'll pay taxi cabs or Uber or something to do, like get out the vote efforts, like go pick up our voters, take them to the polls, make sure that they're able to vote. And this year, a number of campaigns, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's campaign, uh, worked with us for our co-op to to deliver those rides. So we're working in the B2B space because it's a little bit more tame and easy than the the difficult on-demand marketplace creation. But that is, of course, the big prize. And that's like what we're what we're going to be focusing on in the long term.
1: Very cool. Oh man, getting uh, AOC to mention you on the Instagram—that's that's a good problem to have. That's for sure. <laughs> cool. So let's talk about your goals and your expansion plans. Obviously, you don't want to divulge your whole roadmap. At a high level, what are your your kind of goals for um, you know for the next twelve months, and and how do you think about expansion? To to be clear, you, you guys just you started in New York, and that's where you're at currently. Correct. Uh, that's right. And our goals would definitely
0: include rolling out to other cities in the US and, and around the world. Uh, right now, the technology stack we're built on is highly tuned to New York City, essentially. So it's going to take a good deal of work to move out of New York and bring this to other places and Work with other co-ops on the ground uh, in different cities around the world because you know these 3,500 drivers should be compensated for taking a risk early on and being like the first movers in this cooperative. But in the long term, you know we have to figure out a structure for governing the co-op when we have a hundred cities, right? And each of them will probably be a little co-op of themselves of their own. So we'll have this kind of federation uh, above uh, or like as a client of all these other cooperatives and we have to govern that federation cooperatively as well so we're we're imagining some kind of congress of cooperatives so that's that's the medium-term vision like a few years down the road when we've deployed to other cities uh the very tactical goals for the next year to like make our ride matching system very healthy to get uh ridership up in new york city uh and then to improve our, our uh, technical stack for sure so I've been the only technologist uh, in the co-op for the past six months uh, working full- time. We've had some really awesome volunteers who have helped a ton, but like you know, you can only do so much with a ten hour a week volunteer who has like a day job at Google or something. So I was kind of working on my own, making very scrappy decisions to to get us out the door to show that this is a real thing that's that's worth investing in. Uh, now with some investment that we've we've been able to raise. Uh, we hired, we just onboarded two engineers in the past two weeks, and we're, we're stepping back and really building the system that's going to scale to uh, any city around the world. Any any vertical, so like taxis in some places, rideshare in other places, like we'd love to, to be involved in the future, helping cooperatives around food delivery or other logistics uh, use our software as well. Uh, so that's the, the big vision. But right now it's uh, sitting down and improving our technology because, you know, we, we look at our driver apps, say, eh, and the Uber and Lyft driver apps are extremely tuned, right? They've been fighting each other for, for many years. So they're really, really good at pushing the right incentives to the, drive, the drivers at the right time to make sure that you're on one app instead of the other. And we're just this tiny thing caught in the crossfire right now. So we need to really ramp up our investment in technology to uh, just be able to compete on, on that playing field.
1: Yeah, it brings up a good question. Like, you know, in terms of the strategy that you guys have, surely there must be something about how Uber and Lyft operate that you frankly, like probably like admire, like obviously you're not going to follow their, you know, the Uber playbook of going into a new city and like laws and consequences be damned and like, you know, any of that. But at the same time, like there's probably some tactics, you know, methods and stuff that they've used that you guys might think would work for for you as well. Is there anything that you think like Uber and Lyft like are doing right that you could also like borrow from? Uh, that's a great question.
0: So we have to do things differently because we, our access to capital is is different. So there's things I'm certainly jealous of about Uber and Lyft, for instance learning about the early history of uber and they had like any business a lot of really big tactical decisions early on around like build versus buy this system build versus buy that system and every time the answer uh, from the ceo on down was like oh we'll just raise more capital hire more engineers and build exactly the thing we want which sounds like a such a great situation to be in as a as a chief technologist i would love to be in the situation where we could just hire and build exactly what we need and exactly what our members want We have to be a little bit more tactical and a similar space where we have to be a little bit smarter is around providing incentives to get drivers on the road so you know surge pricing is an incentive lyft might push a notification to a driver's phone saying if you take three rides in a row with us like no cancelling no driving with the other apps uh we'll give you like five bucks like right now those incentives are like i said very well tuned uh to to motivate drivers So we're interested in in learning how we can provide the right incentives to our drivers in a way that is effective, but also in line with our values Uh, and also just uh, sustainable, right? Uber or like the other rideshare companies, they get to experiment with this. And, you know, I think there was an announcement recently that they plan to spend uh, $250 million in incentives over the next year or something like that. Just like a massive amount to jumpstart demand as like lockdowns end and, and whatnot, So there is the things that they they can like take on negative unit economics for a really long time in a way we cannot. So we're always looking at like what kind of incentives can we offer and how can we think of this like to guarantee coverage in high traffic areas and, and high traffic times. Um, in a way that guarantees us positive unit, unit economics almost all the time, because we have to spend all of the investment we've received on building the platform. Not just um, you know, we could spend it very fast on on bad incentives. So we're we're always trying to learn how to how to balance those things.
1: Yeah, they can definitely run you know negative unit economics for years, um, and you don't have that luxury. However, on the plus side, I think you'll agree it's good news. You don't have to spend hundreds of millions of dollars lobbying against California props and uh, spending money on underwriting and lawyers and all of that stuff. So that's probably a, a pro, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And, and ultimately, the reason for that is
0: because success looks very different for us than it does for uh, the big rideshare monopolies. Success for us is a sustainable business that grows year over year and uh, supports our members and does better each year. But success for Uber and Lyft looks like uh, monopoly status essentially, because their valuations are so high, they've received so much investment uh, that they can only really justify that by like taking the entire market and, and growing at a, at a just massive pace. So for us, like we, our shareholders are our members. Uh, if our members are happy, then we are. Then we are happy. Um, everyone wants growth, but it's it's just going to happen at a different pace because cooperatives favor sustainability over over, um, I guess, like blitzscaling is the term that, that people are using today, right?
1: So let's talk how people can help and most importantly, how they can invest. We're all about alternatives here, right? And this is absolutely one of them. You can support this company you can support drivers by investing in the drivers cooperative. Let's talk about how they can do that. So now you guys have a current uh WeFunder that's active and I think you're about halfway to your goal. Is that correct? Uh yeah. Well, we've raised about 1.2 million
0: dollars on WeFunder so far in this uh, revenue-based financing structure. Uh so I can talk about that a little bit. So it's it's different than than equity, right? And if you're a venture-backed startup, you sell uh you know 30, 40, 60% of your company to venture capitalists who Take this risky bet on you, and um, you have that. They get a board seat. They ultimately own. You know, after a while, probably a majority of the company after several rounds of investment. So we want to keep our equity with our members, uh, so that you know the only people voting are are the members of the cooperative. And cooperatives do sell equity. I mean, your cooperative of fifty percent plus one votes belongs to the stakeholders. And yeah, you know, that's that's something we might do in the future, and that's fine. But for now, we've only raised um, debt like structures. So on the the crowdfunding campaign we're engaging in now, we're raising debt. So you're making a loan to the cooperative essentially, uh, and it's paid back based on our revenue. So you might, if you invest thousand dollars in the co-op, after a two-year grace period, we're going to be paying back two point five percent of all of our revenue after basic fees to uh, service that loan uh, up to a two point five x cap. So that means if you invest a thousand dollars, then you know you could see that turn into twenty five hundred dollars. So it's it's capped. It's not like Out of the park success, it's not the venture capital profile, but uh, like I said, our our goals are like sustainable growth and um, long-term viability.
1: Awesome, I love revenue-based financing schemes. And so this is an interesting one, I just wanna get a little bit more specific. So when people invest through WeFunder, they are investing in what specifically? They're not gaining any shares of the company, they're investing in operations essentially, is that correct?
0: Uh, Yeah, that's right. I mean, it looks more like a loan than a, a purchase of shares.
1: Okay, so it's it's essentially a loan. So, what time frame are we talking here? So, for the first year, no capital will be returned. That's right. So, two year grace period on the loan
0: before we start making repayments on it, and then you earn two point five percent of the cooperative's revenue for up to ten years. So, if we you know recoup after uh, before ten years, which we. Would be able to do in our models if we gain like around five percent ish, say of um, of the ride share market in New York City, then you uh, will see a two point five x return on your investment.
1: Okay, so this is interesting. So after a two year period, the principal and I-, I guess you can call it a coupon, you know, a, a dividend essentially. Um, starts coming back and that's paid. What is that paid annually, monthly, quarterly? Oh, I should totally know that. It says in the docs, but I, I had one of those. Yes. So after two years, dividends begin getting paid out. There's a 2.5 X max or um, for, for up to 10 years. So is it like if I give $10,000 to this? after two years, I start to see dividend payments until what happens? Until my total payouts reach 25000 or until 10 years happens? Or how does that work? Till
0: either of those, yes. Yeah. So if we um, hit our goals and we're at 5% of the rideshare share market in two years, then you're seeing that recoup over the next few years, uh, well before the 10-year mark uh, to turn into $25,000. If we do not succeed, then uh, after 10 years uh, from the the start of the loan, then um, the repayment period is closed. Um, So that would be the failure case.
1: Got it. Okay. So yeah, just so we understand the risk. So you're essentially making a proxy bet on the company's success overall? And if so, you will get a fixed income stream after a two year grace period. That is right. But I believe the income stream would be variable based on our revenue. So if we do really, really well, you'll get paid
0: back much faster. And if we like takes longer to hit our goals, then it will be paid back slower.
1: Got it. Okay, cool. That's great. So now we know how you guys expect to return capital. And I like the structure. I mean, it is, let's be honest, it's it is the exact opposite of venture capital, where it's you know where it's a moonshot. And if it does it 100x in the next three years, it's considered a failure. It's a fundamentally different type of business, which is exactly what we love to explore here at alternative assets. So awesome. I guess my my final question would be like if people want to get involved, there's more than it may not have the 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 money or maybe you want to get involved in other ways. Like how else can can people help? You know, I, I saw you guys have a, a peer donate button on the site. What's like the best way to get involved, like not through financing?
0: I suspect your audience here is extremely talented and has a ton of talents that they could uh, share that we need at the cooperative. So we are hiring for software engineers. If you're interested in in joining the cooperative economy, like working as a software engineer with our basically cutting edge stack and and really talented team, um, we're definitely open to that. You can check out our jobs page on drivers.coop. We also do take volunteers uh, to do anything from coding work to operations tasks to like, you know, phone calling phone calls to drivers to, to update them on news about the co-op. And um, one thing that uh, I'm excited about and interested in rolling out is kind of a I'm thinking of it as a fellowship program, a way to get people with top tier tech backgrounds into the cooperative economy. I've been working mostly on hiring for the past few months, and I've talked to a ton of people who are like, you know. I really support what you do. I'd love to be a part of it, but like, it's hard for me to leave my job at Google because I have a mortgage. You know, very understandable. And we're we're not paying a market rate salary compared to the top tech firms, of course. So something uh, that I would be interested in talking to more folks about is, um, well, you know, would you like to come? work for the cooperative for three months and receive a stipend. And while you're there, get an education in the cooperative economy and what uh, working in this kind of impact field like looks like. We have connections to anyone in the cooperative space. If this goes well, then we'll be the largest worker and cooperative in the country and maybe eventually the world. So it's a great way to get a different set of skills uh, while using your, your tech skills to build something that you, know, you want to see in the world. Um, so if there's anyone out there listening who might be interested in that kind of program, I'd be happy to talk to them. We have somebody who's uh, taking a leave from Google and starting to work with us for a few months soon. Uh, so we're very interested in talking to this kind of person because, like my experience in the Fang companies, has taught me that there's really is knowledge that's really essential to running these big, like massive scale businesses that only exists uh, in these very small kind of islands out there and it's only in, in people's heads. And we need to, you know, bring that experience and knowledge into the cooperative economy. Uh, and we're very interested in supporting that.
1: That's awesome, man. You know, I think one of the good things that's come out of the uh, coronavirus is I think it's allowed people to kind of, you know, take a step back, re-reevaluate their priorities and what's important for them in life. And clearly that's what you did. You I mean, like you said, this this whole thing is a was a, a lockdown baby. You know I think that now is a really good time people are 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 having, you know, a lot of second thoughts about what their career means and what their place in the world means and I think that getting involved with with you guys and with organizations like this is just a fantastic way to really recalibrate your your life in a in a phenomenal way. Work with an awesome team that you guys have put together and just an awesome forward-thinking type of organization, which there's, there's not enough of these days. And you guys are a prime example of it. So yeah, uh, I guess my final question, man, how can people get in touch with you and um, if they have any questions? Uh, yeah, I'd love to, to talk to folks. You can hit me up at jason at
0: jason.drivers.coop or follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jason P. Jason. I also write sporadically in a Substack newsletter, uh, which I, I keep meaning to get back to. Uh, it's called venturecommune.substack.com, uh, kind of a play. On, on venture capitalism.
1: Uh, I see what you did there. Nice job, man. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm always thinking like, what is the venture commune uh, approach to this problem?
1: Awesome. I also love your Twitter handle, by the way, Jason P. Jason. I don't know. It just has a cool ring to it, dude. Thank you so much. This has been a super, super podcast. Thank you so much for joining and good luck. All right. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. All right. Take care, buddy.